Hello, and welcome to the Dissident Daughters podcast. I'm your host, Ada, and I'm here deconstructing my Mormon faith and making space for other women like me to do the same. A dissident daughter is someone who actively challenges an established political or religious system, a doctrine, belief, policy, or institution. So that's my purpose in starting this podcast and why I wanted to have a space specifically for women to speak out and speak up. I'm glad you're here. Okay, we are back. This is Ada, and we are back with Sarah Newcomb from LaymanitTruth.com. I'm so excited to talk to you again and to go over all the things that we didn't get to in our last conversation. We just had, we have so much to talk about. We have to just keep talking, right? Yeah, yeah. And last time we, like, it was just a spur of the moment. Let's record our conversation. Totally. So... It was a lot of fun. Even listening back to it, I was like, oh, I interrupted so much. And I was like, some of my thoughts were all over the place. I'm like, oh, it'll be good to do part two. So this is going to be good. No, I'm I am so excited. So I want to just mainly give you the floor and let you talk and share what you kind of want to talk about today. And we'll just I'm just going to follow your lead, essentially. Awesome. Uh, well, first, because we were so relaxed with the last one, uh, I think introducing myself yes. a little bit more officially is good. I'm Sarah Newcomb, Tsimtsian of the First Nations. I'm of the Eagle Clan. And the First Nations is what we call the tribes from Canada, but I'm from a group that broke off and went to Alaska. Technically, there it's just a boat ride. Like, they're across the water from each other where my Tsimtsian people in Alaska are from the Tsimtsian in British Columbia area. So it's along the Aleutian chain. And I was born and raised in the church. On my dad's side, I am, I wanna say seventh generation Mormon. They came over from Nauvoo into Salt Lake. And then my mom, uh, who's Tsimtsian, she joined the church at 19 and met my dad at BYU. They both kind of served a mission, fell in love and had four kids of which I'm the youngest. I'm no longer active in the Mormon church. I'm the only one that's left out of my family, but so everyone is active. And uh, though my dad, he did pass away, so he's no longer with us, but yeah, that's me. So I'm living in Texas now. My husband and I met uh, in Utah in 1999. And which shows like some of my age, I went to Rick's college back when it was Rick's. Uh, But we we actually met after I graduated Rick's college, moved to Salt Lake and was working. And yeah, I was attending a singles ward and, you know, checking out the guys. The meat market. (laughs) Almost immediately, yeah, like, oh. Uh, And there he was, you know, his big red beard and broad shoulders, really tall. And like, he gets up and he goes and shares his favorite scripture and, like sits down and I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know, like everybody else is clean cut and there's this, you know, like he's got his big red beard, um, <laughs> just the build. And yeah, so I chased him. I'm, I, I, yeah, I totally chased him, <laughs> uh, but it wasn't hard by the, by like the second Sunday of me kind of like eyeing him and going up and saying hi. And I drug my roommate with me. I was like, yeah, we're new to the ward. Like, hi, we don't know anybody. And he was with all his roommates. 
yeah, he uh, asked me out the following day, so I didn't have to chase for more than a week. He got the hint quickly. Yeah, he got the hint really quickly. Yeah, so we have, we got, he, he served a mission in California, and then, yeah, so that's when we met, was after his mission, and we got married in the Logan Temple, and had four kids, and uh, now we're living in Dallas, Texas. So let's see, I, I was on bed rest in 2013 with my fourth pregnancy. And I started, well, I wanted to really know everything because I didn't want to be like a lazy member. Not that I was, but I sometimes was like, oh, I'm not doing enough. And once you have kids, it's like you just want to be able to teach them everything. Mm -hmm. And I had two girls already and I was pregnant with a fourth or a third girl. It was my fourth child, but third girl. And there are certain teachings in the gospel that made me want to be supportive of their own spiritual journey. And so I started kind of researching on the church websites and trying to learn as much as I could, just so I could help prepare them and in a gentle way for all of the, what I call now sexist teachings. And so during that journey, I, I was exposed to so much information and I actually started to view everything through my son's eyes. And I was shocked. Like, it's almost like I internalized, and I think I said this on, on part one, that I internalized so much sexism that I didn't even see the racism. I didn't see the stuff with that guys went through either. I, I just didn't see polygamy, how it was dangerous for young boys or any of that stuff. So seeing the world through his eyes that's kind of what kept me coming back to Mm -hmm. research like it would be too much i'm like oh i've got to protect my testimony and so i'd stop and then six months later it would just be nagging at me i'm like no Mm -hmm. i know i can understand this i know i can find peace and teach them and so it was kind of like this spiritual journey for me until the very end uh when i came across the church's gospel topics, essays, and the book of Abraham was like what broke my massive shelf. And when I say it was massive, I had like massive binders of just all these notes and things. And I was trying so hard to save my testimony because I did love my version of the gospel. I think it's very personal. And so during that first episode where we're talking, I was like, I won't become what I hate. I won't destroy or shame other people for their faith journey. And I think that deserves digging into before we kind of dig into more of the Lamanite stuff, because I, I want to be gentle on, on people for a few reasons. One, indigenous people didn't have religious freedom. And they have all this trauma. And sometimes when you are in a very abusive situation, finding peace in a less abusive situation feels great, even if there's abuse there too. Mm. I grew up uh, experiencing child sexual abuse. And so when I went to church, it was like I was surrounded with my friends and there was like this safety and happiness. And so I really like 
grabbed onto that environment because it was survival to me. It was where I felt the safest. Nobody was going to hurt me there. Now, I want a disclaimer there that that's not true for everyone. Some people, they go to church and that's where their abuser is. Their abuser is not at home, but is actually at church. And this is my journey. I'm just sharing like my experience, my journey, but it does not discount like other people's experiences. But I can really identify with how indigenous people went through so much trauma. And people are like, how could, how could BIPOC people, you know, in general, be a member of this racist church? And I'm like, well, there's racism everywhere. And when you find somewhere where you feel a little safer, it feels incredible. And when you're on a spiritual journey too, sometimes other people's journeys, which are much more aggressive or painful, don't look like yours. So I kind of separate believers that are just the average members, like just like that I was, from leadership. I don't have any, and when I say I don't have any, I mean, I really have no tolerance for the leaders. I'm about to be much more harsh than I was in the first episode. And I kind of want to prepare people for that because I'm not going to sound like I did with with the first episode where I'm saying, hey, you know what? I don't want to become what I hate. Everybody's spiritual journey is different and I don't know what kind of traumas they're carrying Mm -hmm. and where they're gonna find peace and where they're gonna find support. Mm -hmm. So for me, it once I did leave church, it's like I lost my entire foundation. When I say I fell apart, (laughs) this is a part of my journey I've never spoken about. I've never shared with anyone, but when you have experienced so much trauma from the time you're little, and then you find out that the environment you healed in added to that trauma, added to my shame of having been abused. So I told a bishop in my teens about what happened to me. And I was given the Miracle of Forgiveness book. If anybody's read that, it shames the abused person in a way that makes them responsible for also being abused, like they have to repent of it. Um, That set me up for a lot of future problems. (laughs) But in my home, I was taught like forgiveness and don't tell anyone, image is everything, right? So I had to worry more about the image of other people than my own well-being. And forgiveness had no, oh, I can't think of the word. When you repent, there's also restitution, right? Mm -hmm. There's no restitution in forced forgiveness. There's no restitution and it's the abusers that should be with that restitution. That person was never held accountable. So because you were, you were shamed and guilted and felt like, felt like pressured into, Hey, you just need to forgive and move on. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like you bury all that trauma and I found safety at church and church just kind of helped me process that the world would be better in the next life. Right. And 
then I, I also looked, I had my patriarchal blessing, which kind of does the same thing where it's like, look, you're going to have this and this and this so long as you're righteous, right? You're going to have a temple marriage and children and a happy home and all these things. But even though I was being told, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, you don't need to talk to aunts, uncles, cousins, friends, bishops, I was told not to talk to anybody about it. And when it came to who I married, that was the one time I was like, no, I'm not going to marry somebody without them understanding that I'm going to be massively overprotective of my children. Yeah, that I know that that's going to be I'm going to be I'm going to need help to keep that in check because the children should not have to pay for my overbearing. Right. Like I was aware of that side of things, too. Like I'm not going to take out my own trauma on my children either. But I need my spouse to be aware of this because there might be things that trigger my overprotectiveness that's not going to look natural right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I was engaged before I met my husband I was engaged and when I shared what happens with me, mm -hmm. it didn't end well. Oh, no. <laughs> and so the first person I told disappeared. <sighs> and then. Yeah, of course, like meeting my husband and then I shared it with him. I was like, well, <laughs> you know, I don't I'm still going to live authentic and I still need the person to be aware and I don't want somebody to marry me. Or reject me. I don't want somebody that's I don't want to get married to somebody that's going to reject me later or think of me as less because of this history. Right. And so, yeah, completely different experience, but there was a very negative <laughs> reaction when my family found out that, well, when my parents found out that I had told my husband. So I paid for that. But again, just church was this like safe place for me. And so finding out that it also created more abuse on top of that, you know, like the yeah. shame of having had that happen to me. Mm -hmm. uh, the way people reacted to that trauma. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting because I can heal from the thing that started it all. I can heal from that initial trauma and the years that I experienced that. Like it went on for years. Uh, my first memory, I was either three or four, and I remember. Yeah, those are like my first memories and it went on for like five years. And so like having that in the church environment, like having the church be an extension of shame in a way in my personal experience, that was heartbreaking when I first left the church. I think it's kind of coming across messy because like I'm trying to process while I'm talking about it, but and I'll just pause and be like, shout out to awesome therapists out there and EMDR because my body is not triggered. It's very relaxed right now, but trying to like process it mentally on how to talk about how the, how much the church meant to be mm -hmm. and how losing it is like so hard that when I say I will not become what I hate, it is all tied together. Yeah. Accepting people's spiritual journeys is tied to this accepting what i went through and understanding indigenous people's experiences 
with genocide, cultural erasure, having children taken from their homes on a level that <laughs> is like war on children. Mm-hmm. I am not going to judge indigenous people who are finding peace and hope wherever they find it, including if they decide to label themselves Lamanite. So it can be confusing, I think, in both the believing world and in the Exmo world, why I keep this middle ground, why I'm okay with believers staying active or doing what they need to do. Because when I lost that, it was like a total crash of my life. And I left the church in 2016 and I didn't really catch up with a healthy level of healing until the end of last year, like October, November. And so nobody saw those things that I was going through in the background with research, speaking out, talking about the church stuff while trying to be gentle on indigenous people specifically and not wanting to become what I hated either. You know, I know they were judged for being, we were judged, indigenous people were judged for our spiritual beliefs. And I'm not gonna turn around and shame them for their new spiritual beliefs. So I moved really slowly as I started the blog and started being invited to speaking engagements and I wanted to be true to myself. I know it would sound confusing to others and I fully support people that actively speak out against the church. I fully support those that are more aggressive. Nobody has to talk like me because sometimes I need those voices to be like, yeah, you know, there is healing in the humor, the swearing, the all of it, all of it. And I, I personally, like having lots of voices because that's where we heal more it's all having different voices different journeys but not judging each other for our way of processing right oh i can i just say thank you so much for being vulnerable enough to share that and also you may you may have thought that like you were being confusing or you know but I think you articulated that perfectly. And actually that's the first time that I have kind of understood that idea because in my mind, I had that exact thought. How could indigenous people or BIPOC people or LGBTQ people be in the church? And the way you just described that about the trauma or um, the just, I guess the trauma that they're feeling in their lives and that the church is less trauma in their minds at that time, or, or it is a safety net for them in that time. And so even though from the outside, it could look like, why would they go to that space that is so dangerous and so harmful the way you just articulated it made perfect sense to me. Like, oh, okay, I get it. Because you've experienced this trauma here and you thought that the church was your safety net. And and, and it was 
for a time, right? So thank you. Like, I feel like that made sense to me. And, and I think it's so good for our listeners to hear that. I think it's also important to separate the church from the believers. Like the church gets so much credit for all these beautiful people. Uh Uh-uh, no. The leaders do not get credit for the beautiful people that show kindness, love, protection, all that stuff. That's another reason I haven't fully spoken out is because I don't know how to articulate that there is two churches to me within this one place. There is the leadership and all their business and legal and money-making and tactics and like they're hiding information, the vault, the controlled messages. And then there's the people. And like, it's really, it's really that I, I will not give the leaders more power. Mm. And I refuse to give them credit credit for all these beautiful believers. And I also want to just, yeah, I want to give credit to the believers for their own spiritual journeys, for their own kindness, for their, and (laughs) you cannot have teachings about honesty and kindness and love and expect those people to agree with the abuse. Right. And so it's such an interesting journey where people are like leaving the church because it's not one out of anger or abuse or control or wanting to have 10% of their income back. Right. There's so much of it that's like shock because they are honest. They are kind, they are giving, they are loving. And even being surrounded, being an indigenous child growing up in an environment with all these people with racist beliefs, it's not like they're expressing nonstop racist beliefs that totally flattens who the Mormon people are, which is why I separate it into two, like two categories where there's just this kindness also of so many believers that are just holding their own trauma or holding their own processing. And that's why there's such a huge exodus is that everybody's got all this information now and they're like, That is not how I feel. That is not what I believe about LGBTQ. That is not what I believe about black people. That is not what I believe about indigenous people. And they're totally uncomfortable with the lying, the abuse, all of it. Yeah, I just, just kind of echoing what you're saying is, is there really is a sincere desire. I would even say, you know, in most members of the church to follow the teachings of Jesus, to love and be kind and serve and all of those really beautiful things. And I think that's exactly the reason why I had to leave. Like there was no choice once I knew the things. And it's like my integrity, my own, um, moral compass about, you know, kindness and love and generosity and service and all those things, honesty, I I couldn't stay with what I knew about the church. So these people who I think are very sincere in their belief and in their, and, and in their desire to follow Jesus, they don't know like the real ugly parts of the church most of the time. 
I know I didn't. I know my my dad's side of the family, you know, seventh generation, there's a lot of members on that side. Yeah. And the history and the actual beliefs don't match up with their character. It didn't match up with mine. I was an indigenous individual in this church and it didn't it didn't match up with mine. So it's like I I try to put myself back into that person I was of so faithful that I started researching only on church sites mm -hmm. to be a better mom. That was my goal was to be a better mom, to be able to answer the questions about polygamy and the harder topics in a way that helped protect my children's well-being as well as their testimony. That's what motivated me. I didn't know about like podcasts. I wasn't listening to podcasts. I didn't, I didn't know about the hell ex-Mormon movement. And this was from 2013 and I left the church in 2016. Mm. So like it was three years and I didn't know about any of it until the very end because I got onto YouTube and I finally like, that's how I was exposed to, I think Jer Jeremy uh, Reynolds? Reynolds. Yeah. And I was like, what's this? <laughs> and that's what directed me to the church's website on the gospel topic essays. I didn't even know about them, which is what brought me to the one on, on the book of Abraham and like, <laughs> like, like, I didn't, I didn't know about the whole ex Mormon world until that point. So, so did, had you ever heard of John DeLynn, for example? No. <laughs> like when I say I was such a good member, <laughs> <laughs> my blinders were on. If it wasn't a church website, I wasn't going right. right. But the church produces so a lot of stuff on YouTube. Yeah. So like I was on YouTube looking at stuff, which led me to Jeremy Reynolds, mm -hmm. which led me to the gospel topics essays, which led me to John DeLynn because <laughs> he, he was one, I mean, there was other podcasters. I will say uh, Infants on Thrones was my favorite find oh. <laughs> because it was so flippant and swearing and funny. And it was yeah. like, I find a lot of healing in, in swearing and being flippant with my humor and laughing. But it was such a shock leaving leaving Mormonism because that's where I found my peace from abuse as a child. That's where I found my peace as, as kind of an indigenous person separated from my culture because it gave me this like boxed up identity of, oh, you guys are gonna be the, you know, everything that comes with being labeled as Lamanite. And it's just where I had my happiest experiences with friends. And so it was, it was my safe place. And so like deconstructing that was extremely painful, but unfortunately I'm extremely passionate about research and sourcing. Mm -hmm. You know, I, at Rick's college, I majored in journalism. And so you're taught about sourcing. <laughs> and so that's where I processed everything was, okay, what is this? And is it a good source? And wow. so finding out that the church wasn't true was very, or I should say that the church wasn't what it claimed to be is how I'd rather word it. Yeah. And was really painful. And I just uh, had to process that. But then once we left, 
it was like a, within the first month after leaving that I was like, I'm not Lamanite. Mm-hmm. And it just hit me. So I was like trying to find stability in life from what I went through as a kid and what I based all my life on, mm-hmm. you know, after I left the church. That's something everybody goes through to right. some extent. And then all of a sudden I'm hit with, wait, your identity isn't even what you thought it was. And all the racism and things that I'd experienced that I'd just like been like so detached from because I had to detach. I learned to detach as a child to survive the abuse I went through. So any of the racist stuff that came at me, I detached from that too. It was like my survival mode was Mm -hmm. detached. Don't worry about it. Happy go lucky. You know, like I'm just here to have a good time and be faithful and just all that hope was put onto what what marriage would be and what the next life would be and my children and and so it doesn't surprise me the actions and choices i made but once i realized i wasn't lamanite some of those choices came back to haunt me which is why lamanite truth kind of was born because that's taking people's entire identity and putting this racist ideology onto people Right. So it's been a journey (laughs) for sure. And nobody knew, you know, that for the last five years, I've also been processing all the abuse that I experienced as a child because I was never allowed to process it before. Right. On top of spiritual changes, on top of family dynamics changing, on top of marriage challenges, you know, like, so I wanted to move really slow as I wrote my blog and as I spoke at these different conferences. And so when I would say things like, I'm not going to become what I hate and I make space for members, people couldn't understand it. Mm. But it's because I can see that in the end, the church doesn't matter. We're all, you know, there's all these different churches throughout the planet, but we're all just these humans, like finding connections and meaning and trying to survive different things together. And so people couldn't understand, you know, my approach. And that's totally okay. People do not have to approach it my way. We all have different experiences. But that's why it's also been important for me to say, especially right now, like on your podcast is that if people don't make space for active believers or for the church, that's okay, too. Like, Mm. just because this is my approach doesn't discount other people's experiences or processes. Like if I'd experienced that abuse at church, right? People do experience that, and so I, I don't know. I think everybody deserves a right to their journey, and for us to be okay with each other's journeys. Absolutely, because we all have totally different experiences, and even if we have some of the same experiences, we may not, you know, process it in the same way or deal with it in the same way, and so that has been uh, something I've had to learn as well. Because it's like, just because, you know, I, I respond this way to this information or this experience doesn't mean that other people will respond in the exact same way. Um, and I think like when there's that kind of like anger component of like, I'm pissed, I'm pissed about what was, you know, how I was deceived and how I was taught and, and this and this and this and sometimes and I think anger is I've learned to be okay with anger and that that's just one of the emotions it's not a bad emotion or 
they aren't good or bad. They're neutral and we need to feel them. And like you said, you were not allowed to process any of the stuff that happened to you as a kid. It was just swept under the rug, you know, neatly covered up and um, you're and then give and, and so therefore you never, you never go, you never allow yourself to feel all the stuff that comes from that. And your feelings are like a time capsule. They will just literally wait for you. They'll wait. And at some point they're all going to come out and you're going to have to process it. So I cannot imagine all the layers of things that you've had to process in addition, because I know like what I had to process in learning the church wasn't what it was. And there, it's just a whole multiple other levels that you've gone through. When I left and when I started processing, I didn't have anyone, you know, like family kind of disappears when you leave friends disappear. Cause that was my whole world. And so I went from having a whole world to being alone while trying to raise my kids while I'm processing. And so you want to like protect your kids from your own processing, right? Oh You're like, gosh. they do not need to be responsible for mommy's happiness. So yeah. I did everything to protect them while I was processing, which is why, you know, those first, like, nobody's really heard me talk about all of my journey. Yeah. Because I wanted to protect my kids from my reactions, right? Because mm -hmm. like, there's just these emotional reactions we have as we try to process. So I had to move through it really slowly and find a lot of like kindness towards myself <laughs> through it all. Yeah. But I think it's important to understand understanding why I say the things I do and why I take this middle ground yeah. is because the church is truly nothing to me. <laughs> the people are everything. Yeah. And so I see the people and even saying the church, <laughs> I see the leadership. So this episode is not going to be gentle towards leadership. If yeah. anybody's expecting my gentle nature towards members to extend to leadership, they're not going to find it. Yeah, they're going to be disappointed. They're going to be disappointed because those in power have a lot of responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I am not impressed. <laughs> no. Me neither. No, not impressed. This. So we can. Yeah, I don't know if you have any questions up to yeah. that point before we dig in. No, but let's dig in. Story's good. So. Yeah. All right. Uh, so when it comes to the Lamanite label, because that's all it is, this like pretend story that's been labeled and put upon indigenous people mm -hmm. who predate the Book of Mormon timeline, not by like a couple hundred years or thousand <laughs> years, but by tens of thousands of years. They oh. predate the Book of Mormon timeline. Mislabeling indigenous peoples is an act of colonization and a land grab. Mm. It's a land grab. It's a resource grab. It's a controlling grab to me. Mm -hmm. People do not understand that indigenous members, or I should say indigenous peoples in the Americas did not have religious freedom until 1978. Because in 1978 was when the American Indian Religious Freedom Act happened. Native Americans, indigenous people, 
American Indians. There's these different terms. I prefer being called Tsimtsian. Uh, I also totally fine with being called First Nations. Those are my preferred identities, but we did not have religious freedom protected until 1978. And even after that, that, do, that doesn't mean that there wasn't still abuse right. happening and those freedoms weren't being challenged or taken away. But that's when the Religious Freedom Act happened, was in 1978, I was a year old. So when I'm talking to indigenous believing members, I am not going to challenge them calling themselves Lamanite. I'm not going to challenge them identifying themselves that way or believing in the church because our peoples are so disconnected and harmed by everything that we've gone through through for hundreds of years. I, by, by challenging them and shaming them for their survival, I'm shaming their ancestors then. Yeah. But that's where it stops because when I look at the next generation of children, mm -hmm. even if I don't agree with other indigenous members or people, I want lots of voices because somebody might want to be a member of this church or a different church because that's where they find peace in their healing journey. So as my individual voice, I don't want indigenous children to go without having somebody say, hey, they were surviving. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to accept racism. You don't have to follow the same path. You can reconnect. You can yeah. find your own peace. Because I was labeled something that wasn't even real or correct and that it's racist. You know, so you know what it feels like to experience that, to be taught one thing and then to realize it's not what they said. And you don't want other people to have to experience that. So I totally get it. Yeah. And when I'm talking to other people, I don't want to say, oh, you're not Lamanite, but I don't support the narrative. But if you want to be called that, I will support you. And that can be very confusing when we want to be all black and white, right? That's how we were raised as Mormon, totally. black and white, everything. Yep. But part of me healing as an indigenous woman is being open to everybody having their own journey not this black and white thinking, right? Yeah. And in my tribe, the younger the child, the more the respect. Mm -hmm. And so honoring people's journeys while also speaking out for children, it's very awkward because <laughs> I'm like, you know, I, I'm gonna support each individual's journey because I understand that survival. And that's why I mentioned the American Indian Freedom Act mm -hmm. is that we didn't have religious freedom but also at some point adults need to start adulting. Mm -hmm. And I have, I have a few close uh, friends that are members of the church, one in particular, and he's amazing. And he's just barely starting to deconstruct and he's in his late fifties, early sixties. And it's way more painful than even my journey. Yeah. And I'm like, if I want to respect our elders, I want to give them a gentle space. In my tribe, the reason that there are elders that are surrounded with respect is because of how they treated the youngest, how they treat children, how they treat teenagers, you know, that this respect is earned, not demanded. It is the opposite of actually what I experienced at church. So it was weird being mixed and like experienced Mormonism, but then I'd go home to Alaska and it was like experiencing all this respect coming towards me. 
yeah. not demanded of me. Not demanded. And so it was just a different, it was just like having these two different worlds. Yeah. But thinking and being taught that I was supposed to save my people because they were ignorant, they turned away from God, our traditional beliefs were evil, you know? So yeah. it's like this very confusing experience growing up being mixed. But when it comes to children, I that's why it's been important that as awkward as my healing journey has been and how much trauma I carry, at times it's been hard to write on the blog, but I'm like, nope, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. And anytime I was invited to speak at an event, I'm like, yep. And nobody saw me crumbling, you know, in the background. So I do a speaking event and then go back to the hotel room <laughs> and just crumble. Sorry. Because I, I was alone and I was also speaking out about issues. And it was like speaking out against my parents. Yeah. Speaking out against my siblings and their own journeys. And so um, also feeling very alone in healing with some of the traumas I carried and losing this one thing that I'd held on to for so long to save me from those traumas. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'd speak on Mormon Stories podcast and then I disappear for like three months, four months. <laughs> I wouldn't write on my blog. I wouldn't like, yeah, I just kind of insulate. And yeah. I go running a lot and I ate so much chocolate. <laughs> I actually gained weight running daily because I was just like, it's a party. <laughs> and I just didn't care. Um, yeah. I'm still a bit in that stage, but I'm just barely starting to come out of it because I had a lot of healing over the last, you know, few years, but uh, yeah, therapy has been awesome. I've done like EMDR and it just helped my body stop reacting with the things that, that yeah. I experienced. So it's like, it freed my body's physical reactions, Yeah, but I still carry the stuff, right? <laughs> so I've heard it, really cool things about that. I've never done EMDR, but I've heard multiple people say how awesome it is. Yeah, it worked for me. I don't know that it worked for everybody, but there are things out there that can work. And I think it's great. I, yeah. I think if we would have talked two years ago, you would have experienced a totally different me because I couldn't be authentic and I couldn't do this without freezing up and having a full body reaction that you yeah. wouldn't even have any idea I was having because I would go through the motions, say what I needed to, because it's worth speaking out for indigenous children that are growing up in this same belief system of being mislabeled as Lamanite. So, so when I left, oh, uh -huh, go ahead. No, I was I, say, so was it an, a detaching from yourself in order to do that? Cause yes, a, a defense mechanism. I was very detached because of the childhood abuse I'd experienced. I had to detach. Yeah. And then anytime I dealt with racism, the older I got, the more it became common. So like a little indigenous, you know, 10 year old gets all kinds of kindness, but you put a beautiful indigenous 16 year old that's dating somebody's son, it's going to be a different experience because I was, they were dating a Lamanite and any risk of those children being Lamanite is there. And so my experiences dating there was like some really, really great ones. <laughs> and then there was a lot of 
not so great experiences with racism in meeting parents. And there was some racism from people that were around me, but wouldn't, you know, that wasn't dating, but it, the older I was, the harder it became to kind of process that. I don't know if that makes sense. No. And I think the older you got, the more maybe you recognized it for what it was instead of like when you're little, maybe you don't totally understand if, you know, you're, you're being treated, I don't know, or or maybe you don't see the racism as much, but. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I think when, when I was deconstructing And then once I stopped attending church and had made that decision that I was like, I can't continue on this path comfortably with my kids. Yeah. With teaching other people's children with Mm -hmm. like, none of it could work because even though I was raised Mormon, my people's way of being, my grandmother was with me, you know, like that way of being and looking at children, I could not in good conscience continue as a member. So once I left, there was a lot of, uh, I don't know, I think I was just, I get very determined and focused, but it was like, I couldn't point myself in a direction. Mm -hmm. And so once I know what direction I'm going, I just charge. I'm like, yep, doing this, doing this, doing this. Like you can't stop me (laughs) from like accomplishing, but it was really hard to even know what direction to go in because my entire safety system was gone. My identity was gone. And so there was a lot of deconstructing, but I kept thinking about what children are taught, what I was taught. And I didn't start Lamanite Truth as a way to challenge members. I actually started it, one, as a way for me to process, and two, as a way as something for members to land on when they left the church. Mm. So when I first left, I couldn't find anything on the internet. Mm. There were some podcasts, but no indigenous voices, right? There was a couple, there was like Simon Southerton and Thomas Murphy had spoken out both on Mormon stories. And I found that eventually, but like the, the indigenous voices, I couldn't find anywhere. And so I was like, well, I'll just create a space for people to land on once they leave because mm-hmm. it's so painful, right? <laughs> to like, what just happened to me? Because you're not just losing religion or talking about religion, which is worldwide conversations happen about that. You're having your entire identity taken, your history yeah. taken. Like my people were were in Alaska far longer than this whole Lamanite narrative, right? Ah. And so having that, having to rebuild my identity was very messy. I've grown up in a different world with education. I was, I don't know, in my teens when the internet became more accessible. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, even when it was first accessible, there wasn't a lot of information on there. My children are born in a time where they won't be able to understand the actions of my Gen Zers. Yeah. (laughs) I'll be like, you know, we didn't, our phone was connected to the wall (laughs) and we did not have internet on it. (laughs) So when I look at like our elders that are in any Christian, 
type of denomination. They didn't have a choice when it comes to like boarding schools and forced assimilation. I'm not going to judge them for their survival of their people. And so when I started the, the blog, LamanitTruth.com, I wanted to, one, kind of process and explore my understandings and things that I was dealing with. Yeah, I want to say it was uh, 2016 that I left. So it was like 2017, I think I, I went on Mormon Stories. Okay. And I was like, you know, what? I'm, I'm going to start my blog because I like, I think I might have even talked about it on my Mormon Stories episode. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to start my blog because I want people who do leave to not experience what I did, where I'm searching the internet and not finding anybody right. that knows what I'm going through with yeah. an identity crisis, basically. Like, I'm not Lamanite. <laughs> like, yeah. what? I viewed my own people and myself. How, you know? Yeah. My history, which is far longer than a few thousand years mm -hmm. was traded out you know for mm -hmm. this other history that has nothing to do with me yeah. and so i started deconstructing and you can kind of see my very messy journey like throughout the blog and in some ways it got harder because i was processing healing in my own life so yeah. i would not post as often as i first did but then once i as I started processing more and more, I also saw that I needed to respect, you know, all these different journeys. And so it's been messy. It's been weird. Yeah. In the end, it really came down to not mislabeling people. That should not be a part of religion. Totally. And so, yeah, uh, that kind of brings me to, I kind of made a list like, well, what's my wish list? Like, <laughs> what would I like to see the church do if the leader's <laughs> like, oh, I'm, I'm going to do what she says. <laughs> Let's dream big. <laughs> yeah, why not? Totally delusional. <laughs> but I wanted to put it in writing for myself because yeah. like, I didn't know what I wanted. Yeah. And I was so confusing healing. So I tried to make a list that was gentle also for people that want to stay and believe. Like I wasn't wanting to take down religion necessarily. I say necessarily because I, I don't have very positive views, but I do respect individual. You don't want to take down faith. people. You want to take uh, power structures, I would say. Yeah. I'm like people should be allowed their faith journeys and their way of connecting to something greater. But when we have people that have way too much power over their journey, other people's mm -hmm. journeys, they need to be held accountable. So this list is for them. This is not yeah. a list for indigenous people. This is not a list for members that are faithfully attending every every week finding peace and joy and serving mm -hmm. this is for leaders in power who need to be held accountable for that power i love it love it so we could dig in do you have any questions like i shared a lot like you're like no. i didn't expect all that <laughs> <laughs> no it's great i am i don't have any questions i i'm excited to hear what you've got let's dig in Everybody yeah. ready? Yep. <laughs> First, on the list, there needs to be an official apology from the prophet because he is accountable for the entire church. Yep. It needs to be his voice that says, we apologize to the indigenous peoples of Utah for the genocide and cultural erasure 
that they experienced in the early days of Mormons moving to Utah. Yes. The people of Utah, the Utes, the Diné, who are also known as the Navajo, the Paiute, the Goshute, the Shoshone, and any other tribes not federally recognized that are also from those lands. Mm -hmm. Prophet apologizing to the peoples of Utah. He did not do those things. People living now did not do those things. But there needs to be an acknowledgement and a healing because the church as, a, as an entity performed atrocities and genocide upon the people of Utah. So that's number one. Mm -hmm. If number one doesn't happen, nothing on the list matters. Mm. Two, remove all Christopher Columbus interpretations and teachings from all current manuals and printed materials that are current. This doesn't mean you have to go back and erase something from 1970. Right. This means growth and saying, you know what, that's an interpretation. It doesn't say Christopher Columbus in the Book of Mormon. Right. That's an interpretation that we've decided, hey, we're going to treat this as fact. Mm -hmm. The reason this is important, which is number three, an apology the to the Taino people who greeted Columbus and experienced massive genocide, sexual trauma, and trauma of every kind, children being fed to wild pigs and dogs ripped from their mother's arms. They deserve an apology because they were not unrighteous Lamanites. Right. The church shouldn't even have to carry that weight. Indigenous members of the church should not have to carry that weight because it's an interpretation. And so if they remove those three things, like apologize to the people of, of Utah so that you're not carrying that weight, but it also helps healing in the state of Utah, mm -hmm. has to come from the prophet himself. Mm -hmm. Two, remove all Christopher Columbus teachings because those are interpretations. And three, with that removal of Christopher Columbus' teachings, apologize the, to the Taino people because they should not have to carry their own genocide as something they deserved. Learn about what Christopher Columbus and his men did to them and then combine that with church teachings of they, their ancestors were so unrighteous that that's what was going to happen to them because of it. Yeah, Don't make them first, carry that. They were separated from God and their promised land, quote unquote, was taken from them. Right. And so it was all that's the way they interpret it as this was historical fact, even though the story in the Book of Mormon is <laughs> fiction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, remove that weight. Free, yeah. free the Book of Mormon from this heavy weight. Yes. Make it a more peaceful place for all peoples. So people who want to know more about this story that you're talking about with Christopher Columbus and the Taino people, do you have one main source that you would recommend somebody go and like, where would they start? Is there, you know, a I'll, I'll get some, a few sources together that maybe you can post as okay. a link on yeah. the, on the episode, but I'm sure there's many. I, yeah, my <laughs> it's overwhelming to know where do I start? 
Yeah, it's not it's not hidden on the internet, thankfully. Yeah. And there's books written about it. There's accounts. There's um, most of the accounts will also include Christopher Columbus's own journal, um, mm. and also the journal of a. Oh, I think they call called him preachers or not preacher. It was a religious leader of sorts that traveled to the Americas with Columbus on one of his trips back and okay. saw what had been done and was being done. And he journaled about it. Okay. Um, he was horrified. And that's where we get more details also is from him. Okay. I wish I knew his name, but. Well, I think it's important to know what sources to go to, because for me uh, in school, I wasn't taught the was not taught these things and so i know that there is whitewashed history out there i know there is history from one person's perspective that may be totally biased and whitewashed and and not necessarily telling the whole story and the truth and so if i want to go and find the truth i want to make sure like i'm getting it from the the right sources so that is helpful yeah, there's, there are some books on it. And there's, of course, the journals is where we get most of our information, the journals okay. that were kept, but there's also the Taino people and their history itself. So I would say diversify what you read. Because okay. if you go to one source, that's some way I'm like, ah, uh, because, because I went to Rick's college <laughs> and I majored in journalism, the one thing I really got out of it was sourcing. Yeah. And just because something says it's the best source doesn't make it so like exactly. diversify your sources, find sources that connect to the Taino people themselves, their own voices. Like we want to go to these sources of, you know, a white male historian that wrote something and has all these things, but we never go to the people themselves. And so that difficult because they didn't write down a lot of their history. It was, there are start start with the statues. Okay. There are statues that they have that commemorate some of their warriors. Okay. Read the history about those. Start there. Okay. But always look at sources. Whatever people read, look at the sources, follow the sources. Yeah. Because sometimes you think you're reading something that is official, but then you go to the source and you're like, well, the quote was taken out of context. That's not what the quote was saying. Right. And so as you know my little bit of journalist training i follow everything and then i follow that and i follow that and so when people ask me for stuff to read it, i get a bit hesitant because i'm like well if i tell you this then you're going to think that's the best source mm. but that's not necessarily the case like just follow everything diversify and anytime you have anything that's actually from the people themselves read about that so read about what those statues represent and you'll know the people okay and i think that anybody who's listening to my podcast is probably an ex-mormon and so as ex-mormons we get really good at mm -hmm. sourcing stuff <laughs> at like reading and and finding out the real shit because we've been lied to and we're like we're yes. I, so dead set on like I'm not just going to accept one person's word for it anymore like I am I so I think as a general rule we've all become a little skeptical <laughs> <laughs> and a lot better at looking at actual sources and going and reading many different things 
to piece stuff together. I think for sure yeah. something that I've become really good at instead of like in the church, you're just like, oh, just read the book of Mormon. And then you have the whole story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think because I was trained in sourcing, mm-hmm. there are a few extra things that I know to follow. And so people will think that, oh, this book is about this. This is the source. Now look at the end of the book. Look at where those book, where that book sourced everything. Follow their sources. Gotcha. So when I'm talking about sourcing, I'm ta- saying, take it to the next level. If you read something that you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. Look at the source that was used and follow that one and follow, you know. Yeah. So it's a whole history is like, there can be such great sources that are very, to some degree accurate, but it's not like math. I mean, I love (laughs) math, you know, because you're just like, this is the answer. Nobody can argue. But when it comes to history, diversify diversify as much as you can and always go back to the people themselves yeah so anything that leads back to the people's voices themselves that's what i would say to do right um so yeah i i'd start with maybe the statues there and reading about the history of those statues there's a one warrior that refused to convert and would rather die than convert to i think uh it's probably a catholic church Um, but he'd been fighting to protect his people and they, they were going to kill him. And they said, you can either convert or die. And he was like, I will die before I convert to you, to your religion. And so he has a statue. I am so sorry. I don't have that name. I would have prepared, but yeah, the Taino people were a beautiful, peaceful, and extremely gentle people. They had a very healthy balance and way of life. And so what they went through is not because they had unrighteous ancestors or because their religious beliefs that had nothing to do with Christianity were evil. Like that is very toxic. Mm -hmm. And I think the church would actually benefit from like freeing itself from some of the mistakes of their predecessors. And Christopher Columbus is not named in the Book of Mormon. This is like an easier step than most is just remove that from interpretations. Yeah. Remove that from interpretations, apologize to the Taino people and apologize for the genocide and cultural erasure of the peoples of Utah. I think the apology is so important because that's what we're lacking in almost every area of the church. There have been things that they have just stopped teaching or that they have you know, pretended never existed, but they never go back and apologize. They want to, in in a lot of different areas, just like, oh, we'll just, we'll just hide that. We'll just sweep it under the rug and we'll walk away. Maybe we'll walk away from this teaching, but we'll never address the harm that was done because of that teaching. And we'll never apologize because then that's admitting fault, right? And so the apology is what is so freaking important because there's no healing without that apology no and that's why I was like if these things aren't met the rest of my list doesn't matter yeah like these these three things because that is so core Mm -hmm. you cannot just quietly remove it 
and ignore the Taino people for those teachings. It right. formed the way so many people view what they went through, but what they went through was so horrific. And that's why I kind of overshared. I know some of that history is going to be so hard for some listeners. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh my gosh, I don't want to listen anymore. You know, if we really got into what the Taino people went through, yeah. it's horrific beyond what people imagine. Mm -hmm. And to say that Christopher Columbus was guided to God, guided yeah. by God to the Lamanites, labels the Taino people as Lamanites, that he was, he was not greeted by Lamanites, like the lesson manuals at church say. Yeah. He was, yeah, we have to, we have to get rid of that Christopher Columbus teaching yeah. in order to just start healing the relationship between Mormonism and indigenous people. Yep. And it is possible. And I think if, I think, I hope I'm, this is my like, I can be naively hopeful, like, <laughs> That there's some leaders up there that would do this mm. like people there are a lot of inherently good people and you can't tell me that everybody would be against this but there are enough leaders that wouldn't be for it that i don't know i don't know who i don't know if the leadership is capable and that's why I have a lot of let I, I just don't have the patience for the leadership I hold them to a completely different standard Absolutely. Because they put themselves, they put themselves in that position. Yes. Where we should be able to hold them to a higher standard. Yep. But yet for some reason, we hold them to a way lesser standard than just the average member of like, you know, allowing them to screw up in huge ways and say, well, they're just humans. They're just men doing the best they can. Bullshit they're not doing the best they can. That is the end of part one of this conversation with Sarah. Um, our conversation went quite long, so I decided to divide it up into two parts. So check back next week for the next part of our conversation. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this content and it's been helpful for you, don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast. Leave us a review if you love us. And finally, if you can, I would really appreciate financial support in this work. You can go to dissidentdaughters.org or mormondiscussionpodcast.org and choose Dissident Daughters in the drop-down menu when you go to set up your donation. You can do a one-time donation, of course, but better yet, set up a monthly donation of even just five bucks. If you've left the church recently, you've probably experienced a 10% income increase. <laughs> and here's a place where you can donate and know that you're supporting a fellow dissident daughter who wants to stick around and keep providing a supportive space for deconstructing our faith together. Thanks for all your support.